Welcome to Say It With Guitars. I'm your host, Pete Cornelius. Each episode, I'll be digging deep and getting to hang with some of Australia's finest guitar pickers, songwriters, producers, collectors, and makers. I look forward to bringing you these fun conversations and I hope you enjoy Say It With Guitars. Hey, thanks again for joining us, folks, for another episode. And yeah, great having a chat with Kane Donnelly on the last little one. Hope you had a listen to that and you've had a listen to his band 1920. Uh, yeah, I've had a busy week or so out on the road with a project called the Tasmanian Songbook with some great fellow Tasmanian artists. Great to meet some, some people I haven't really uh, hung out with before, so that was really cool. And great to reconnect with someone that I have as well. That was great. And I'll also look forward to heading to the Echuca Winter Blues Festival end of this month. So hopefully I can see you out and about. Um, in the meantime, here's today's chat with Mia Dyson. Before we crack into today's show, I'd like to shout out to our sponsor, Mr. Billy Tarrant from Tarrant Guitars. Billy's an amazing luthier and he makes some real sweet instruments. I'm lucky enough for him to have built me a double O size acoustic guitar which I've dragged all around the country and it's sounding better than ever. So yeah, check out tarrantguitars.net.au. Tessie's one-stop custom workshop for custom-made guitars, all guitar repairs and services. Let's get into the show. I'd like to welcome to today's show, Say It With Guitars, Mia Dyson. Mia, how are you going? I'm good, Pete. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. Just layering up, putting lots of layers on because it's pretty fresh down here. And you were saying it's it's quite the opposite in your end of the world. Where are you yes. in this wonderful day? I'm in LA. It's about uh, 3.30 in the afternoon and it's 31 degrees and I'm in the <laughs> smaller music room with the no air conditioning. So it's it's getting, I need to take the layers off. The layers, <laughs> all the layers I can take off are already off. <laughs> so I caught up with you very recently. Um, you are on a Tasmanian leg of your national tour and you're re-releasing, well not re-releasing, you had a sort of a newer version, like an EP version of Parking Lots. That original album, was, was that 20, almost 20 years ago that came out? It was 2005. It was supposed to be the 15th year anniversary and we, we re-released it on vinyl as well as doing a little um, kind of stripped back version of five songs for an EP. It ended up being 17 years anniversary because of COVID. Yep. It was supposed to be 2020. We all know what happened. Why that didn't <laughs> we, work do. Out. we do indeed. Met a pretty girl in Gower only a first time I've been there two years and had two more in line I kind of gotten used to the life you know Food and a bed you got nowhere else to go I had nowhere Now it was great to, great to see you and hear you um, in real life and as much as the venue didn't really do you know you guys that much justice you sort of played to the room sounded great it was a good vibe and you know the songs always stand out and the interaction between you three on stage was 
really healthy and musical and yeah, it was lovely. It was really great to be a part of the event. So well done. It Thank was you. um one of the last shows of the tour too, right? You were down here for I'm gonna have a guess, what, three, four weeks? I did uh actually uh eight weeks of shows, but the first two weekends were only one show each. So sure. uh the Tassie shows were the second last weekend. So we were almost at the end uh, of the tour. And um, yeah, it was kind of epic after two years of not touring. It was a bit of a shock to the system. I don't know how you feel about returning to performing, <laughs> but I mean, it's one, I guess it's one thing to play, you know, a show, but um, I, my body was like, what is this? All this stimulation? <laughs> I couldn't yeah. sleep. I never yeah. used to have trouble sleeping after shows years ago, but I was like, I, I got wired. So um, it was quite a interesting thing. I mean, I had a blast. It was so fun to, to play um, with other people again, you know, like there's nothing like being in a band and interacting and, and the spontaneous stuff that can happen when you play with real musicians you know, on stage and yeah. there's a life people and things can go wrong and things can go right. You know, it's, it's exciting. Yeah, we sort of forget after not performing for that amount of time. Um, you know, a lot of remote recordings happening around and that was really great. But there's, you just can't replace that real instantaneous reaction between people and, and, and a crowd or, or regardless if there's a crowd or not, just like hanging out in a rehearsal room. It's pretty, pretty fun. Absolutely. And I, I learned something on this, this trip, which is, I'm just make. I'm just instead of waiting for you to ask me questions, I'm just telling you stuff. Good. Good. <laughs> uh, but I, I, yeah, I, um, I prepared like I'd never prepared before. Perhaps because I hadn't played for two years, and also because I hadn't played these, you know, fifteen or seventeen-year-old songs. Some of them since we first released the album, and, um, you know, I think I just knew. Okay, I've got to really, really practice and and feel like I I know things really well before I get out on stage because there'll be so much to deal with that feels new again that I just wanted to be really prepared and it just it felt so good I think I I realized that um normally in the years past when I'm sort of touring more more or less all the time like I wouldn't I wouldn't really prepare with any kind of um seriousness I would just get you know like I know the song and and you know it's good enough, but there's something about preparing to the point where like I walked on stage for the first show and felt totally effortless. And I've just never, I've never yeah. done that before. I didn't realize yeah. you could do that. <laughs> so um, I, think I had a block where I was like, Oh, I shouldn't prepare too much. Cause I want to like, it's supposed to be spontaneous and you're supposed to leave room for like, but, and of course though, being prepared allows you to be spontaneous. Like yeah, that's the kind of trick. It's the key. So anyway, it? just thought I'd share that insight. That's great. It's, it's a really good little insight there. And like you said, um, as much preparation as you can does allow you to improvise on a more relaxed manner. Th you know, things exactly. that the, the dynamic's going to be a little bit different, but it's going to be still exciting. It opens up a different part of your mind, I think. If you can really rest on it, it's going to be great and free and easy. So that's cool. Exactly. Just, you know, you're just adding sort of cream and cherries and stuff on top instead of trying to build the cake. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's right. She loved a lot like my first love back in the country When the cop and the mayor 
So what, what was it like returning to these songs after such a long break? Some of these songs you probably haven't played for 15 years. Yeah. Well, uh, the thought of it was really challenging. Um, I have my various feelings about, you know, all of my work, all of my previous work, and I tend to prefer the the songs I've written more recently. I, I tend to have a lot of criticisms of songs, especially early days. You know, that was my second album. And and yeah. even though, you know, sure, it's two albums in, but I was, I was only 24, 20, like I wrote those songs maybe between 22 and 24. And, um, I mean, I just, I didn't know anything. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just feel like, um, so, so I went in trepidatious thinking like, oh God, what if I really don't, you know, don't like this or it's, it's like cringy to, to try and play these songs. I mean, I, I did, you know, obviously I wouldn't have even attempted it if I really thought it was awful, but I yeah. did, um, I did have that trepidation. And then, you know, I, I started playing the songs and practicing them and eventually with the band, um, you know, and I just, in that hopefully sort of thing that happens when you get a bit older and can have a little bit of compassion looking back on yourself and what you did in the past, I just was able to see the things that really worked about the songs and just let the things that I had criticisms of just be, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and particularly because I, I feel like the strongest element of, of some of those early songs is, is, is some of the musicality and riffs and guitar parts. Um, you know, lyrically, I think it's a little weaker than my most more recent stuff. Um, and also, I feel like, at least on the albums, I sort of oversung a lot back in the early days. Yeah, so it was sure. actually fun to get a chance, like, to get to sing those songs a little more um, with 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 what feels like my my authentic voice now. I feel like I was trying to push certain, trying to sound a certain way instead of just being yep. a certain being myself yeah um it's, it's so hard to quantify and and probably you know the average person listening wouldn't necessarily be able to tell the difference i don't know but <laughs> i much prefer the way i sing now and um and, you know but i did f- find that like those songs are written to be song- sung really like loudly so i still had to it was it was quite a challenge to kind of bring my, a little more subtlety to them um when where they're sort of designed to be sung yeah. like out. Do you think that just comes with a bit of age and maturity and, and gigs under the belt, uh, records under the belt, um, that performance? Like I know that when I was younger as well, it was all about singing, like, like you said, singing loud, playing, the, and especially because we, we both play guitar. So, and the guitar is typically a loud instrument. You're typically around a drummer and a bass player who are going to be up in volume and you're in a probably noisy environment. You, you want to cut across the the noise floor a bit so and I guess PA systems 20 30 years ago weren't that great ones that we could afford so you just had to like make it a lot of noise um and that's kind of my background as well I'm not not presuming that's that was yours as well but no it's true it's exactly my background so and I think the two go hand in hand you you just want to get up there and just make a racket put your message across and and that develops a certain sort of voice and a skill which is has a sound and I, and I think with a bit of youthful uh ignorance or um unexperience you, you just sort of get up there and do it so but i think the ability to look back at um previous work and approach it from a, a more mature experience sort of mindset or or skill set that's such a great gift i reckon 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I really want to grow and become a better songwriter and become a better guitar player and singer. Like that, that's always been a goal of mine. And yet I feel like I just had sort of big blind spots where even if, even though, even with the will and, and desire to improve, if I think that the only way to sound good is just be at, you know, 100 decibels, yeah. <laughs> it can be a bit of a, you know, it can be a bit of a, um, obstacle yeah you know and uh especially when you want i mean the joke about like everything has to be louder than everything else you know <laughs> so you know you play the guitar the voice has to be over that but you know the drummer wants to be heard like everyone wants to be heard yeah. and everything has to be louder than everything else so it's um I, and i think it was an insecurity thing too like i thought i need to be heard you know i need to be loud i need people to pay attention and this is the way to do it and it is one way to do it but it can also turn people off and I'd much rather now sort of draw people in because there's really some substance rather than just like they're being assaulted <laughs> with, <laughs> with volume. Oh, look, I think you're being a little bit harsh because I recall seeing you back in those days. It was always an intriguing um, – uh, it was never loud. It was never a, an assault. It was always – Obnoxious, never obnoxious. No, never obnoxious. <laughs> no, it was always interesting and yeah, always at a good volume. It was. I never felt that. Um, I don't know. I, I'm. I'm sure that. God, I. I would have been, on that end of the stick a fair bit, maybe loud and obnoxious. But no, that doesn't come across. It's not one memory or reflection that I have of seeing you guys live. So you can sleep. It's okay. All right. Well, that's a, that's a relief. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I might as well mentioned that probably the first like since we're going back in in time a little bit might as well mention the first time I think I really saw you guys play it must have been I was trying to rack my brain yesterday think about when it was I think it was at the Frankston Guitar Festival in year 2000 I came oh, over wow very very early um you guys were playing as a trio I might have I'm not sure if it was it was with Danny and Lucas um it was it was Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I think it was like some sort of guitar performance. I, know, I entered some sort of category to like a jazz and blues sort of style competition. And I think that's, I was there for that. And I remember meeting up with your old man. I think my, actually my old man chatted with your old man and they got talking and he's like, oh, <laughs> my daughter's playing down the road. You guys should come. And then I think there was an issue with the guitar amp or you need, I don't know, there was an issue with something. So we come down thinking we might be able to help or borrow something or whatever. And then we got to see the whole gig. So, yeah, I think it was year 2000. Yeah. Wow. I, I remember, <laughs> I don't remember specifically the gig, but I remember the Frankston Guitar Festival. Like I, I think you play multiple times. I don't know. But I, I what I do remember is that it was one of those first few gigs and maybe you have a few like this. Because, you know, I, I the first few times I ever got up on stage, it was like terrifying and, and almost so terrifying that I didn't want to get up again, you know. But then, you know, a day would pass and I'd be like, oh, I want to do that again, you know, because like <laughs> it was maybe terrifying and I, and I, everything that I practiced just like I didn't, once I was on stage, it's like a whole, as you know, it's a whole different thing practicing yeah. in your bedroom to being on stage. Even the fact that if you're, you know, um, unwise like me, you might practice sitting down and then when you play, you're standing up. So, you know, your relationship to the guitar is completely yeah. different. Yeah. So, um, so early days I had like 16 going to the Barwon Club in Geelong and playing to like the bartender and an old drunk guy. And just, it just, I mean, even though there was no stakes, it seemed, it was just terrifying. But, um, but that Frankston Guitar Festival was just one of those 
one of the first shows where I just felt like, ah, oh, this <laughs> this is really cool. You know, this is this could be amazing. You know, like something uh, like I was able to. I think it was partly because it was one of the first shows where an audience that wasn't there to see me because they had no idea who I was, but just happened to be there and they were music fans. Like I played and they liked it, you know, like that rare, (laughs) like it's great when you're, you know, you're established and you're playing to fans. That's very different. But when you, when you don't have fans and you're just playing to a bunch of people in a room, it's an amazing feeling to like have them. Yeah. On um, your side. On your side. Exactly. It's a pretty magical moment. It's like a real light bulb moment or a lightning bolt perhaps, more so than a light bulb, um, or just like, wow, this is what it feels like. I can do this. This is fantastic. Come on, guys, let's let's book another show. Let's let's make this happen. It's a pretty yeah. electric sort of moment, a real pivotal point. And then I think we caught up very briefly. We came over in 2001 and recorded a record at the ABC studio in South Bank, and I think we come on, borrowed one of your dad's baritones. I think we drove around to your place. Used the guitar for a few days and brought it back. Yeah, so nice. It's nice. a beautiful instrument. That is such a good tool to have on hand for recording an album. It's like a little trick, not a trick, but like, <laughs> yeah, just that that wonderful deep but still very electric guitar feel. Just can can just be used on in so many different contexts in uh, in recording. Yeah, they're a mighty tool, absolutely. And I guess I guess you are. Uh, made aware of that quite young. Um, how, how old do you recall being when um, your, your father Jim was making guitars? Was that a, a, an interest of his for a long time or did you guys kind of like start digging into music at a point together or talking guitars or how, did, how do you remember that sort of period? Yeah. Oh, no, he'd been building guitars since I think since I was like a baby or even maybe like right around the time I was born. Oh, so. Right. Yeah, I was always, I mean, don't quote me on that, but it was definitely, you know, we've got photos of my sister with a guitar that he made for her when she was like five, so I would have been three. Sure. Um, and uh, so I was just just like all kids, you know, the, the place you grow up in is your normal. So the guitars, him making guitars was just always around. I didn't even pay that much attention to it. Um, he had a workshop when we moved to Torquay from from Dale or from outside Dalesford, and yeah. um, you know, and he would just you know every couple of weeks he'd appear with a guitar that he'd made that looked amazing, beautifully beautiful sparkly, you know, because he would spray them himself as well. Like I mean, obviously he made made the whole guitar by hand, including uh, spray painting the body, and uh, and so I'd always be excited about the you know when I was kid it was like the color or yeah. the, the the shininess or the wood coming through if it was a, a tint rather than an opaque color and I played a bit of piano um you know from maybe five or six or something like that and got put off by a really overbearing teacher and you know but I you know so I, I had some sort of musical um background but it wasn't until a friend of mine both wanted to learn the electric, how to play the electric guitar and write songs. And she wanted my, she got my dad to build her a guitar. Like she got her mum to get my dad to build her a guitar. <laughs> and I was just jealous. Yeah. I was like, what? I, I'm the dad with the 
the who makes guitars. How come I? Like yeah. it hadn't occurred to me. Um, even though I was, you know, really into music and and this is around like thirteen, and I'm listening to, you know, as every thirteen year old of that generation was listening to like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and, you know, all the the grunge. I mean, I was also listening to all the music that my parents loved, which was, you know, blues and roots and soul and gospel and rock and roll. Uh, I mean, like 60s rock and roll, not not 90s rock and roll. And um, (laughs) yeah, and and through the 80s too, I'd listened to a lot of like the, the great 80s bands like Talking Heads and Elvis Costello and yeah. So, um, you know, I was just, I mean, it started out as jealousy. I was just like, well, I'm going to get, I'm going to get a guitar. And I got my dad (laughs) to build me after my 14th birthday, you know, and it's like, I, I'm embarrassed. It's like, I hate to think if that hadn't happened, would I be a guitar player today? But I fell in love with it. Like it was just the thing that I fell in love with was that you could learn the songs that you loved and play them. Yeah. And then, I mean, that was, so that was falling in love with playing the guitar and going like, I can do, you know, you know, it's like one of the (laughs) first things I learned, come as you are. And dad taught me, you know, bump, 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 you know, the, just a 12 bar blues. Yep. And, um, and then I fell in love with, you could just make shit up. You could make up songs. Yeah. That was a revelation. Like I don't know what where I thought songs that other people had written had, like where they came from, but I didn't realize you could just, I could make I could make them up too. <laughs> um, so I kind of fell in love with first the guitar and then, and then writing songs on the guitar, and making up my own stuff within you know fourteen to sixteen, and yeah. uh, kept doing it ever since. I think that was a great period to start learning guitar because there were bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Metallica's and things like that. It was very guitar-influenced time. Like I wouldn't say I feel sorry for kids now, but like modern music, you know, it's just hard to teach on guitar. You go, "Uh, I can't really pick any guitars out of this song. Uh, Maybe we can find a pad on a keyboard and we can just like sit on the... (laughs) sit on that sound for a little while and make, make, we can make a beat, you know, but we can't necessarily go and play a big G chord and go, oh, there it is. There's the chord I've been searching for. Like, right. So I, I think it's Yeah, I can uh, sit there with, sorry. With, with my, like, my CD player and, like, play and then diddle it, stop, uh, try and diddle it, like trying to figure out what that is. Like I, I used to, like, figure out riffs and, and, and people's solos. Like I had, I had to learn um, Lenny by Stevie Ray Vaughan for I did music in year 12. I loved that song. And I just had to sit there with the CD player, pause, pause, pay. And, and I just, yeah, you just pointed that out. Like I didn't even think about that, but there aren't guitar bands that are, you know, top of the charts anymore. (laughs) So I'm sure it's, it's, there'll, there'll be a generation decrease, generational decrease in the number of people picking up the electric guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Look, has it's, I'm sure it's all swings around about some, and, and guitar is always going to be a, a, an instrument that sits in someone's house. They're pretty unobtrusive just to have around and most people, you know, they're pretty affordable these days. So most people will do have a guitar of some sort lying around or a ukulele or something stringed. Um, I think the days of pianos in houses are slightly going. But I think music is more accessible than ever. So I, I don't think the amount of musicians is going to dwindle. I think it's just... 
just going to change what it looks like and what it feels and sounds like at home and the way people learn. It's definitely changed the way people learn with the technology that we have these days. Yeah, well, it's it's like you said, it's inexpensive enough now to have a a little setup like I've got right here to to record, where you can you don't have to have a, a a real piano. You can get a keyboard and start hearing yourself playing all these different sounds. Whereas that that was prohibitively like the the keyboards when I was you know ten years old was so well. I'm sure that there was expensive ones that were. Um, you know, amazing, but the ones that you could just get for, you know, a, a, a working class family, they were like, just sounded ridiculous, yeah. you know, <laughs> and uh, we, we had one of them. It like, like had seagull, like fake seagull sounds and just, you know, <laughs> it doesn't sound like what the music that you'd hear on the radio sounds like, whereas you can, you can do that now. You can sound like some of the stuff that's on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I know they just fool around in GarageBand with a MIDI keyboard and you can get lost for hours, for days, just the yeah. amount of sounds that are just on your computer are untapped. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So can, can we go back to some of your early influences? Um, you mentioned you listened to a lot of your folks' music. Um, there's been a bit of a Rikuda theme so far with my guests. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming oh, totally. rise up on your list. Absolutely, yeah, from... Probably still to this day, my favorite guitarist, I think. But, you know, that was, you know, my dad exposed me to a whole lot of incredible, like early blues. And um, I mean, of course, like Robert Johnson and the Elberts. Um, oh, no, sorry, the Kings, Albert King and BB King. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, John Lee Hooker, you know, those, like the real blues dudes. And then um, he, you know, the, ba- the guitar bands, like, well, not that the the band is particularly a guitar band, but you know, you know, um, the band Little Feet, yeah, um, yeah, and then definitely Bonnie Raitt, and then on the other sort of end of the spectrum, the the singer songwriters like Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, of course, Neil Young, yeah. um, and bands, you know, like I said, Talking Heads and U two, you know, like of course, you know, like kind of the full spectrum of what I would consider popular but also but not not pop music like <laughs> you know um i guess it was popular in its day although a lot of those bands were never really big um uh, obviously bob dylan and leonard cohen yes but like you know little feet is like a yeah it's kind of a it's sort of a niche for the band even yeah. i know um yeah cream of course Jimi hendrix steve ray vaughan um yeah, uh, and on from there, yeah. That's great. Yeah, you can't go wrong with any of those guys. It's such a timeless, groovy bunch of musicians. Yeah, it's good stuff. Right. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, and were you playing that stuff at school? Um, I had a look at your wiki yesterday as well, so I've dug up a little bit of, bit uh-huh. of dirt. Um, were you playing instruments at school, like when you went to school in Geelong? Were you how, like any school sort of bands or any like after school a, things or I, yeah I was such a weirdo I I went to <laughs> Matthew Fender Secondary College which is one of the few schools that had well actually I don't know much about other schools but this school had um, a school band that got to go to like Montreux Jazz Festival and travel wow. all over the world and I just I just was like 
weirdly playing guitar in my bedroom and never told anyone that I played <laughs> until year 12 <laughs> when um, I decided that I would do music as one of my VCE subjects. But even then, only only the other music students know, knew and they were all classical students. So I was like in the music um, and I'd picked solo guitar, which meant, you know, I got to learn Jimi Hendrix and, and Stevie Ray Vaughan and um, cool. old blues songs and stuff. But I didn't, I basically kept it a secret. Like I was so shy and so didn't want to be asked to like, you know, like if I, I, I guess I had this fear that if I told anyone, they'd be like, oh, well, can you play something for us or can you play? In? And I was like, no. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, I was crazy because I could have, I could have had some experience um, getting to play with, it was, they're called the Sweethearts of Swing and um, there's like, you know, it's a big, a big soul band with like horns and guitars and drums and everything. So it would have been great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But um, it still worked out a treat. So tell me, what, what brought the move to the States? You were doing well here. You'd won an aria with parking lots. Did you just need a change, a bit of a shake-up? Or did you just sort of want want to really test the waters in the States? How, what was the um, yeah inspiration behind the move? Yeah, well, basically I'd always been kind of obsessed with the with America, I, as you heard with all the list of influences. Like I grew up on American music, but I also – grew up reading a lot of American literature, like like yeah. American writers writing about America. Um, and American songwriters sing about America. Like, yeah. you know, I know some Australian songwriters do that, but at the time I didn't really know any Australian, like this is, you know, I don't know if it's for bad or good, I didn't really know like Australian songs that were about Australia and, and, and um, inspiring that. Whereas I was, I was drawn to um, to see these landscapes that the Americans would sing about, or the American writers would write about, and of course, American movies and TV. I got to see some of it. Yep. Um, it just always felt like this, you know, huge, mysterious, enigmatic, adventurous place. And um, so, even before I, you know, was doing music, I just like if, if someone had asked me, you know, could if you could travel anywhere, where would you want to go? I'd be like the States. Yeah. So and then the States is also kind of the mecca for musicians. Like everyone who wants to be successful in music wants to make it in America, you know. <laughs> it's like or it's it's kind of like if you make it in America, you, you've made it in the, the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, that may not be true, but that was my idea. So I basically, ever since my career started, it was like, 
could I ever get to the States? That would be amazing. You know, could I get to play music in the place where all that amazing music was made? You know, Muscle Shoals, Memphis, Detroit, um, you know, all of these little, like, gosh, just places they were, they were mythological to me. Like, um, so yeah, totally. So after three albums, I did get the sense, like I wasn't, you know, super successful, definitely wasn't commercially successful, but I had, you know, a decent career, um, in Australia, but I also felt like there was nowhere more for me to go. Like I'd played all of the, the festival circuit multiple, multiple times. Um, you know, I'd never gotten a record deal and it just didn't seem like that was, you know, in a way I kind of got lucky and rode the wave of DIY and, and was able to release records without a label and actually make some money. Um, but it also meant I, I didn't get to, you know, a record label can bring you to a a wider audience. And I, I never, I never really was able to do that. So I was just like, well, why don't I try, you know, let's go to the States and see if, um, if I can, uh, do something similar in Australia, you know, as I did in Australia, just have a little nice little career. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've been there since, or or did you sort of, was was your first trip like a uh, back and forth and like hanging out and getting a taste for it or or did you basically put your suitcases down and go here I am I'm in it let's do it no it was it it was that I I got this booking agent who who booked me a tour was it even I think I even went twice uh in 2006 and 2007 um and absolutely loved it and in the course of that experience just realized like there's no way I can build my build a career in the States by going back and forth. Um, like it's just not, it's just not financially feasible. Um, I mean, for some people it is who, you know, have the right, not, I mean, not the right, but, you know, get a record label or get the right support or whatever it is. But if I was going to build a tour, a a career off the back of like live performing, like I did in Australia, as opposed to, you know, being on the radio, um, I had to be there. So I moved to Boston first because it's on the, you know, my booking agent would like, was, was like, it's the dense part of the country. There's so much, you can drive an hour and play another show and then another hour and play another show versus in the West. It's like, you have to drive six hours yeah, between sure. shows sure, um, or three hours or whatever it is. But uh, so I, you know, I took that advice and, you know, I think, yeah, I just, I, I kind of didn't realize that, of course, I would be starting again, like really starting again, yeah. like making no money. So <laughs> I was still like, <laughs> I was still imagining, or not imagining, but assuming some things. Um, would translate between. Would just, yeah, but no, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you get to go through all that fun again of building up and networking and sleeping on couches and yeah. Totally. Totally. That's great though. Um it must have it must have been inspiring enough and diverse enough or you could sort of see the expanse, the future expanse of it enough to, to make it worthwhile. Like you've you've stuck it out and you're going great guns over there. You've done some cool recordings too. I noticed that some of your 
latest albums. You, you did, you've done some work in Nashville. You went down to Alabama. You did some, did a record. Your, your latest one was down at Muscle Shoals, right? Yeah, exactly. And the record with Stringer and Clower, um, was it? Was it the Loft, right? Oh, in, in Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the Wilco awesome. Studio. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a big part of why I stayed was not because I had, you know, astounding success over here, um, but because I met some some musicians and my husband in that sort of that second year that I was here um obviously my you know my husband and I still together so not that he he's happy to live in Australia too so it's not like he's he's keeping me here or anything but um I also met um a couple of musicians who became have become my long-term uh long-time collaborators and and uh, we made um the moment we've made you know since all the records since um, I moved to the States, so The Moment, Idlewild, and uh, If I Said, Unless If I Take It Back, which is the one in Muscle yep. Shoals. And, you know, there's various other people come in and out as well. But um, mm. making those records here too was a real um, exciting thing for me. You know, it's just, it's just at, at least at the time, it just was, it felt very different than recording in Australia. In, I mean, in Australia too, I'd only ever be able to, to afford kind of home studio, maybe spend a bit extra money on a studio for um, the mixing or, but um, yeah, with, with moment, I got to record in this um, incredible, like huge studio with like windowed booths and everyone could see each other and the total isolation, really high quality stuff. And it was nothing like as expensive as in Australia at the time. I know it's changed now, but at the time it was like just half as much. Wow! To, to record in this, you know, in this amazing studio, yeah. Because um, there's so many, and like this was out in a small town. Like they can't charge what they charge in the big city, and it was just amazing. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty um, good reason to to do that. I know that I'd, I've been recording myself probably since day one. You know, I think we've done one or two recordings or albums in proper studios but typically it's just DIY you know I not for the sake of any anyone's benefit apart from your back pocket basically because in an ideal world yeah a label would just chuck you an endless check and go you make the record of of your dreams and then two weeks later or maybe a month later you'd walk out of the studio and you'd have a record on drum but yeah unfortunately that's just not how it works um, especially here um, but yet yeah, seeing, I, I had a look, um, I think you might've done like a bit of a possible or a bit of a campaign for the moment. And you did a bit of video footage and stuff for that. I saw some YouTube of that yesterday and, um, yeah, the studio space looked awesome. It looked really cool and really inspiring and probably engineers who've working on, working on some awesome records and, you know, and yeah, Grammy nominated. Yeah. yeah. So that sort of stuff. Like rubs off. Yeah, exactly. That's all like right there and available in a, in a place like LA or you know New York or many cities. Whereas we, it, I, and it's again, it's changed now. But it, you know, being when you when I was in Melbourne, like those opportunities were just not available. I think Sing Sing costs like eleven hundred dollars a day. It's just like I can't, yeah. I can't just <laughs> do that. That's yeah. insane. I think I think it was. Um, and that's without an engineer, whereas this studio was like six fifty with an engineer. That one you saw in those videos. Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. We can make <laughs> twice as much music. Exactly. Exactly. 
That's cool. Yeah, very inspiring. Um, tell us a little bit about The Loft, working with Liz Stringer and Jen Clower on that record. Oh, that was that was so fun. Um, and gosh, forgive me because I've forgotten the name of the engineer, but The Loft has, I mean, Wilco. Tom, Tom Schick. Tom Schick. Thank you. Gosh. Okay. So he he's their guy, and he man, you know, he runs that studio um, when they deign to let let other people in there. Because I, th- I mean, it's mainly their studio for making their records, but they do yeah. let um, other musicians that they know. Um, I think Mavis uh, Staples did record in there, as there well. too. Well, indeed, well, because didn't um, the Wilco frontman uh, produce it? I'm pretty yes. sure he produced the. Record. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, you've probably heard it's like a billion guitars. He's got a, he's got, it sounds like an exaggeration. I mean, it's, he's probably got 200 guitars in there. Could be more. Wow. Um, uh, and then keyboards and drums and like there's, it's a where it's, it's a warehouse size space with another floor or maybe even two more floors with gear of gear. And, wow. I mean, frankly, it's a bit overwhelming. The only the only reason it was um, not overwhelming was that Tom was just this. I've never met anyone like him. Like before, I even realised, like I might have just mumbled, like, "Oh, it sounds a bit." Uh, and then he's got this other guitar. He's like, "Is this is this more <laughs> what you um, or a pedal or an amp or you know? Oh, we could try this." And and hence. Well, again, we couldn't afford many days. I think I think we recorded and mixed it in like six days or something. It was it's, it's absurd. Like I was nervous. I was like, "How the hell are we going to do this?" Yeah. Um, but he, he, I think he mixed it all in two days. It was incredible, and um, he just has that studio utterly dialed and knows every in and out and maintains the gear beautifully. Um, so everything's working. And uh, yeah. you're never sitting around, you know. You just like that. Insp- that's was my beef when I first started recording. Was like, oh, I just have to wait while this problem gets solved. And when you've got that energy, and then you just like all your energy just starts to fade away as as more and more things take forever. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. to be, you know, that's that's can be, you know, that's home studio recording sometimes, um, and even sometimes in a professional studio, like if they don't maintain the gear. That shit can happen, but this was just such a dream, and I can see why. You know, once you've tasted that, it's like hard to go back to, to any <laughs> other kind of. Um, but yeah, I got to play. I don't even know what we played. I mean, I had my guitar, and I know we put it on some things, but we tried out all these different um, guitars and basses because me and Liz were kind of um, sharing the bass duties on that, and we had Glenn Richards on drums, and he was. He, and like again, we because of time constraints and money constraints, we couldn't even rehearse. So he just showed up, having listened to all the demos, and knew everything. You know, just had it all down. And um, you know, we were able to, like I said, record it all probably in three, three or four days, something like that. That's great. Striking while the iron's hot. Get in there and just make the most of the inspiration and and capture as much as you can. That's definitely a good way to do it. Um, because yeah, like you said, once that, once you're on the wait for something to get, you know, patched in or to, oh, let's try this microphone and it's like, well, well, let's just, let's just put up with the one that's there and go get a good performance because the performance is going to go downhill 
waiting for the um, engineering perfection <laughs> or whatever, you know. So, yeah, that's a good um, good way to look at it. So well done to the loft, totally. Yeah, exactly. Sweet. Um, and so what's what's the plans, May? You, I'm sure you've, you're continually writing. Uh, do you have a, a, a writing style like, or do you like take yourself out bush or out to the desert for a week or – or, um, or are you one of those people that can just like sit on a plane and write a song or, or how, how does, what's the process for you? I'm, not. <laughs> I'm definitely not that last example. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I really, uh, I need space and quiet and my own little routine to write. And my ideal scenario is that I'm writing just daily, um, in the morning before I do any other kind of business, you know, busy work, emails, whatever else, like try and get that, that early morning energy. Um, uh, and yeah, I've never been able to, uh, you know, the dream has always been that a song would like just come to me, but that's not how, you know, that's, that's happened probably three times in my whole life. Most of my writing has been sit down, you, you mess around. Like I love, you know, I always start with the guitar, like I'm just noodling and hopefully actually getting into a state where I'm not even thinking like, oh, play this there, put your finger there, just just noodle and with a bit of luck, some little chord, like, oh, those chords and those two in that progression sound good together or and then singing nonsense over the top or yep. or um uh and you know at the best of times like some chords and a melody will come together at once or and or at the very best of times and the lyrics all at once but you know mostly it's like chipping away like maybe i've got one line that i really think is solid and then i'm going to work outwards from there you know, is it, is it a verse? Is it a chorus? Oh, you know, maybe it starts out as a verse, but actually, or it starts out as the chorus, but then it's like, no, this is just a verse. We need to find another thing that's the chorus. And, you know, it's, it's weirdly, I don't understand it because it's like, it's so hard and yet it's so satisfying. <laughs> and yet I don't, you know, it's not satisfying very often, but ultimately it's satisfying. So it's, it's kind of a weird Thing. I know there's some people who just love writing songs, but I find it more like a wrestle. It's a wrestle and it's not always fun. It's not yeah. always um, uh, not always making progress or, or seemingly making progress. Um, but on the in the big sweep of time, progress gets made and eventually like I have enough songs to make a record and then I make a record and yep. go back again, start again. But, um, you know, it takes a couple of years at least for me now yeah and I don't um I no longer say oh you should be able to write faster or you should like this is just I've tested it enough times it this is how this is what my ability is and I don't seem to be able to shift it <laughs> it's good you you've found your sort of natural flow and I guess you've you've stuck with it you're sort of not wrestling too much you know like having a little wrestle with a song at the time is good but pushing it you know is not always a creative benefit I don't think. Right. That's cool. So you said you're every day you're putting pen to paper and trying stuff out in the mornings or is it when time allows? I mean every day when I'm at home. Yeah, every day when <clears> I'm not on tour. So I, w I wouldn't do it on tour like um, and I wouldn't do it like 
while, you know, like while I'm making a record or I'll definitely take holidays and, and breaks and stuff. But my, it's like, I consider it like my job. So when I'm home and, you know, maybe I, I think generally I do it five days a week and take Sunday off and post to this tour, I was like, it's taken me a while to get back in, back yep. into it. So, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm by no means like some crazy disciplined person, but once I'm on that daily thing and I'm not on tour, you know, I can be pretty disciplined about it to do it that, yeah, I think, every morning. Yeah. I think routine's key for, for writing songs. I've slipped out of the routine from having kids. Oh, well, I'm, I'm blaming the kids. <laughs> there you go. Um, I stealing all of my mind. They, <laughs> um, they take up a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, I, totally. But I, so many friends of mine, for some reason, have almost been more creative with kids. They must just associate. Or they must just go. All right, I have an hour. I got to smash it out. I got to get it done. It's like, well, I'm, I'm the same as you. I, I need to sort of sit down and force myself, or not force myself, but uh, give myself a task and go. Today, I'm going to write. I don't care. Maybe I just write a verse or two or three lines. Or maybe I just do a little pool of words that sound really good together, or or some sort of imagery. Or like you said, a few riffs. Chuck it on the phone and come out at a later date and see if it spurs anything. Because um, it's totally a muscle. Yes, that's how it is for me for sure. And if I, you know, the dream of just songs just appearing. If I wait for that to happen, I'll never write another song in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think gear can be inspiring in that way too. I know that we probably write, well, I probably write most of my songs on acoustic, but sometimes you'll buy a new pedal or get a new guitar or a new amp or something is new in your, I don't know, tonal palette. Might sort of shake a few bad habits or I might even accentuate a few bad habits and go, oh, that's a cool riff or a sound. Does that happened to you a little bit as well do you think yeah for sure um and yeah I, that's interesting too that i've i've mostly written on acoustic even though i'm really not an acoustic guitar player like you know there is a different skill set to be a really good acoustic guitar player um and so it's weird to be an electric guitar player and i think i i in the early days i did write all on electric but um anyway I mean, one big example of what you're talking about was when I did get myself a, a piano and I can show you because I've got this, uh, it's a it's a short scale piano. Oh, so great. It's, you know, because, yeah, it's like, what is normally 88 keys? I think it's like 64 keys. Mm-hmm. So you know, as you were saying before, most pian- people are not wanting to cut pianos around um, when they move, but this one's actually small enough and manageable enough that, um, and we haven't moved in six years, thank God. Um, <laughs> so, so one thing, you know, like was when I started, okay, say I'd st- I'm halfway through a song and I'm kind of stuck, like just play it, try and play it on piano instead, see what happens. And that has been really useful for my my, my songwriting and vice versa, like, like try and start a song on piano knowing that I'll probably switch it to guitar but yeah. see what comes out and I mean I did I do have a few songs I think on the moment that are actually piano based rather than guitar based but um that's something that continues to be a way to like unlock something when a song seems to kind of be going nowhere or blocked or yeah um, and same with I fell in love with like I've never loved acoustic guitars as a general you know it's just not my instrument but I do love um nylon string 
So when I, you know, and partly I think because um, they're much, well, I, I found like a narrow neck nylon string guitar and it feels, uh, I don't know, there's just this um, gentler, yeah, I just I just had never come across nylon strings um, apart from, you know, I guess, in rec- some some recordings but it's not a not a not a real um rock and roll instrument <laughs> it's not no. uh, so yeah yeah so i find it really useful for for writing as well That's so cool. i've got i've just got a cheap beta you know narrow neck nylon string guitar which is hard to find because they're often really wide necks which are too wide for my yeah, i was, was going to say how was it a is it a custom made thing or is it one that you just sort of stumbled across or did you like hunt it down because yeah typically they're well, a huge huge flat big fretboard Exactly. Well, I just, um, it was actually my mother-in-law who was, um, uh, you know, they sit around sort of singing together. And, and when I met my husband, like we all sang together, sang harmony together. And she just has this, it, uh, I think they were made for, um, you know, people learning, like kids learning, like they're three quarter size or half size. Um, so they've got the narrower neck. And so once I knew that they existed, I, I looked for my own and eventually what I did was buy a, a fairly cheap regular acoustic guitar and, and just um, uh, widened the nut so that the um, nylon strings could fit and just had it uh, adjusted by a, you know, a guitar tech to be a nylon string. Sure. Um, okay. So, yeah, you can just do that too if you can't find a narrow neck because I, I looked, like I looked, you know, I eventually got really into it and was like, I, look, I'd even be willing to spend like, some serious money on a really good nylon string guitar that's a narrow neck, but they just yep. don't make them. Like they don't make really high quality <laughs> nylon string guitars that have a narrow neck. Yeah, right. As far as I can tell. I wonder if Jim will go into production. Oh, I know. Yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's, uh, he's retired. <laughs> yeah. Has he made any acoustics or is he purely uh, electric guy? The very first guitar he made um, was an acoustic <clears throat> And he, he started as a classical player, which is bizarre to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I forget now what, like how he stumbled into that because he's just, he just seems like he's always been this electric blues player. But, um, <laughs> yeah, very first and only guitar, a uh, very first guitar that he made was a, a, a steel string acoustic, a really beautiful shape. It's his own, his own design, really gorgeous i've i've got it um back in australia but um he never made another one because he realized yeah, he loves right. electric guitars <laughs> wow and there is a lot of work in an acoustic with the bracing and to getting oh. them to sound really open and but also not fall apart and implode so it's quite a skill exactly yeah he i mean he that was the other part of it, it was like I, I can't remember exactly but way less hours to make an electric guitar than an acoustic way yep. less and you can crank them up louder and get feedback. And oh yeah, do so many things. It's <laughs> uh, cool. And how about the lap steel thing? I know that you've you've played a lot of lap steel over the years. Does that kind of take a bit of a backseat more these days, or is it just like a, a special sound that comes out on a recording? Or do you dabble much on that? Pretty much what you said. Like I, I, the reason I don't play it as much as I used to is that. Um, you know, given that, I, you know, I mostly play as a trio, so I'm the only um, accompanying instrument, I mean, obviously bass, but yeah, so, and and I've, I've got to hold down the rhythm um, and 
with an open E, like I, I have my lap steel tuned to open E, there's only so many songs you can I could write on it. Yeah. You know, like it's not as versatile, nowhere near as versatile as a guitar, unless you're going to change the tunings every song, which I'm just on stage, I can't stand having to tune. I don't know what it is. I've got an, I've got an aversion <laughs> to having to do different tunings and like yeah. I'll drop D occasionally, but that takes like a second to do. Yeah. Whereas tuning a, like changing all the tunings on a lap steel, every song is like a big deal. So I was just like, I wrote some songs on the lap steel. Um, and so I don't play it much as my main instrument with the band, but I can pull it out anytime we're recording. It's just like, you know, a little, just need a little like forlorn sound in the background somewhere. Like it's the perfect instrument for that sort of almost, it's almost voice-like in how it can be really melancholy and, um, yeah. and you know, it's, yeah, it's, it create a lot of different sounds on it that can be great for recording. So uh, I've definitely, I think I've pretty much put it on every record somewhere. Yeah, right. Being like a slide-based instrument, have you messed around with bottleneck slide as well on a regular guitar? I have. And I'll, you know, I'll, um, in the early days, especially like, I mean, very early days when I was still playing like blues covers and stuff, I would, be, I would play some slide, like Bonnie Raitt style. Like I've got a, yes. I've got a slide, actually really hard to find a slide for a, a narrow finger like I've got. They're all made for giant men. <laughs> so um, my, actually my dad, <laughs> no, it's funny. Um, my dad used to um, work near this like brass. They used to make like c- cylinder brass things and he just like got a few pieces and cut them and then got them chromed for me. So we got one exactly for my finger and also that's a little bit short so that I can play. I can have it on, play chords. I can't really use my little finger, but I can play chords at least, and it can be out of the way. And then I can jump to slide when I need to. Cool. So I did a lot of that in the early days. Um, yeah. Uh, I still, you know, I, my guitar's not. Again, I, I. It's not super set up for slide. Like you really want a higher action yeah. Yeah. for playing slide. Um, Again, I'm not one to do a lot of swapping around of guitars and stuff, but um, you know, occasionally it'll I'll bring out the slide. Um, you know, I'm no expert, but I I do enjoy it. It's a great tone just to hear a note that sort yeah. of sits in between the frets and you know just gets wavered. Yeah, slides around. And like I said, it's a very vocal way of approaching a note. You know, you can sort of slide into it, slide out of it, or give it a wobble, and it can be very haunting. Yes, indeed. One of my favorite, um, you know, Rikuda's slide playing, like just, you know, like the Paris, Texas album. Oh, I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with yeah. that. Yeah, just like yeah. some of the best stuff ever. Yeah, he's never in a hurry. That's what I like about his style. He's always <laughs> and stylistically honors the sort of, like, because he, he does waver between all sorts of world musics. It's always blues, but right. it's always like influenced by other cultures. So to mm-hmm. hear him with his expert kind of knowledge and and execution, he's such a yeah, such a gem.
Tell me about the support with Clapton you guys did in let me have a look, 2009, <laughs> the Capital yeah, Cities in was, Australia tour. Yep. Still by far the most people I've ever played to and and all, you know, and the biggest shows I've ever played in my life, obviously as an opener. Um, uh, it was, I mean, it was a huge deal for me and still stands as one of the, the big highlights of my career. Um you know, just to be to be picked to to do that opening slot was just like a, um, just one of those pinch yourself things. And then to um, it was so much fun because uh, you know we were a trio. It was um, Angus Diggs on drums and yeah. um, James Hazelwood on bass. Great. And uh, I just you know I mean I've played with so many amazing players through my life, um, but you know they were just both incredible players and we were all such fans of not only Eric Clapton but the people he had in his band, you know. He had um, Steve, um, I was going to say Jobs, he didn't have Steve, <laughs> Steve Jordan on drums. He had um, Willie Weeks on bass yeah. who was Donny Hathaway's bass player. He had um, Doyle Bramhall II on guitar. He had um, what's it, Susan Tedeschi's husband. I should, Derek Trucks. Derek Trucks on guitar yep. he had this keyboard player who i cannot remember the name of now but who was just one of those like i think he'd played with everyone chris, joe cocker chris and, was it chris dayton you, you know oh, yes no. you got it all down and you know and and um of course eric clapton's like one of the most famous people in the world so he kept to himself <laughs> but, yeah, right. but it, all the other players you know we got friendly with and uh you know we're hanging out with willie weeks and derek trucks and uh, you know like derek trucks because I'm a fan of Susan Tedeschi and he was like, oh, I'll call her up and we can say hi to her. And, <laughs> and because we got to do the entire Australian tour, um, you know, we, we I mean, that is just, I for me, like one of the most wonderful things about being a musician is the camaraderie that you can have touring and getting to meet, you know, amazing players. I mean, sometimes it's not great meeting your heroes, but like yeah. mostly like the players are you know are just incredible people who who like love music and they you know they would come and watch us and it was such an honor you know to have any of them see see our show and i remember willie week saying man you know i used to play in this trio with donny hathaway and you guys remind me a little bit i was like <laughs> what because you know it used to be i think yeah that he played in a trio i don't know who the third wow. the third player but um just sweethearts and and uh, and then you know the wild new experience of playing in front of you know mostly like fifteen thousand capacity, um, uh, not stadiums but what do you call them um, arenas arenas yep. theaters well, no not theaters they were all like like Rod Laver Arena and ah, right. you know those style they were like the sports um, the sports centers but then in WA doing like an outdoor gig. With thirty thousand people, it's just like, and and it really made me realize, like, there's actually, it, you know, it doesn't get any. In fact, it gets less intimate, you know, the bigger it gets, especially when they build those stages where the the barricade is like five meters out from the stage. So, the first person from you is is maybe ten or fifteen meters away, which is that's a long way. Like, if you're in a club and the first person was fifteen <laughs> meters away, like they'd be right the at door. the back of the room. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, it was both uh, an incredible, um, you know, exciting experience and it also had me go like, 
oh, I don't have any aspiration to, to, to have that, you know, to like, this is not the kind of, um, live gig experience that I'm looking for. Um, you know, to open, yes, but, but I, I just realized that I didn't inspire, aspire myself to, to that. Yeah. I guess it just comes with a certain amount of fame that that's, that's the, that's the site, that's the, how many people that want to go and see that particular artist, you know, like if you get 15,000 people coming to see you, you need a massive footy able or. <laughs> well, I, mean. I don't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. I did say to myself, you know, if you ever get that big, like maybe you could do three nights at a 5,000 capacity theatre instead. You know, I mean, theatres have their own problems too with sound. So, you know, it, uh, there's maybe no no perfect um, solution to that terrible problem of oh, having 15,000 yeah. people. Yeah. I don't know how he does, does it. Um, <laughs> what sort of things did you learn from that? Like... Um, so no, it's a whole different beast. I, I did a few supports with Joe Bonamassa over the years, and um, same thing. Like the whole thing's like this wool-eyed machine. They have their structure of sound check and loading and catering and all these other worldly things that were new to me. So I, I kind of like, I don't know. I didn't get freaked out by it, but it was definitely just things I wasn't used to. How, how did you guys go with that? Because Australian festivals pretty low-key in that regard like you sort of got to help yourself a lot whereas those big shows I'm sure everything gets worked out for you how yeah did you learn much in that regard well I learned that I would love to have that kind of um you know being taken care of on a regular basis (laughs) you know like we were um I mean I think also we got lucky that it was a really um a fantastic crew and the general, because I've been on other tours with with some artists where it's like, you know, you get treated like you're, you know, the the very unimportant, which you are, but it's not. It's really nice when you can still be treated well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, on that tour, and same with Bonnie Raitt, same with Chris Isaac, just super regimented. Like we, yeah, we need to be doing our sound check exactly when and getting on and off stage exactly at the times. And I had my clock and, you know, all of that stuff, which is easy, you know, that was, I was easy to do. Um, and then, you know, just having the support of the, the crew to like get our stuff on and they take our gear. And I mean, just the, the luxury of that as a, as a working musician in Australia, I mean, to this day, I don't have roadies, um, and it's always a an incredible luxury when you know you do a tour or do a, a few shows where everything's taken care of. And um, you know, I mean, I, I remember Eric Clapton would just walk off stage and get in a van and drive away. Like, you know, doesn't have to. Of course, I mean, why? What? You know, why would he be doing any? But it's not like he didn't even stay in the venue. He could just you know walk off stage and get out of it. Like that's just <laughs> wild to me. Um, and I think I learned, you know, some some interesting, like stagecraft stuff. Like just watching the way he would structure his set. I mean, they were doing probably two plus hour shows, okay. um, so it wasn't necessarily going to translate to my my show. Well, certainly not my opening set, but even um, you know, normally I was probably only at the max playing for an hour and a half when I do my headlines. But but still, just the way that he. Um, would structure a set, um, you know, they had like this uh, 
low key bit in the middle and 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 even just you know the way he, i mean he had he's one of the most famous guitarists in the world and he brings two guitar players with him on this yeah. tour like that man is not insecure about his guitar playing you know like <laughs> i yeah. i just thought that was so so interesting and cool that he would throw throw to them i mean really Derek truck was trucks was the one that really left the impression on me the way that he would on with slide like he would do like a five minute solo and it was not boring yeah. it was like the way he built that like the dynamics of it and the the emotion of it was just absurd you know it's like how did yeah. he do that he's definitely a dynamite player who takes it to the next level he's always inspirational and yeah he's never plays the same thing twice if he does it's pretty rare but yeah it's always intentional and he's always in deep it's good exactly cool well Mia, i reckon we might might wrap it up appreciate you um, spending the time for having a chat with us today on the potty you're so welcome it's really fun to to talk really loved um the, the things you brought up and talking with a fellow musician <laughs> yeah it's something that we don't get to do that much you know unless you're rubbing shoulders with festival goers it you know you sort of find yourself isolated a bit these days so i think it's a good good thing to get out there and get the community a bit of a, a smaller you know sort of shrink the community a bit and hang out and sort of spur some conversations about the industry and and get people talking so yeah thanks very much mia and all the best thank you for your future work and hope to see you soon cheers thank you great to see you thanks for listening folks to another episode of say it with guitars if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it around to your mates, leave a good review, and hopefully we'll see you next time.